scripture this morning comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 20 and on. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the son of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priest received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And then continuing in verse 35. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, and there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hasn't it been good already to be in this place this morning? Amen. What an amazing morning it's been already. Thank you so much for being here today and for joining us online. We continue in this series called Trust uh, When Times Are Hard. And before I launch into the sermon, let me say two things. I received a text as soon as I got down. Two men in our church took care of that footbridge yesterday. So the footbridge is done. So Caleb, wherever you are, just take that off of our list. Secondly, on Wednesday night, uh, Caleb preached. We have two young preachers in training here at Grace right now, Alex Marsh and Caleb uh, Jones, both just great young men. And Caleb preached Wednesday night at our first Wednesday service, and we had a seventh grader. Her name is Chloe, who gave her life to Christ. Isn't that awesome? Chloe will be baptized. Chloe will be baptized at the next first Wednesday service. We baptize, do baptism at every one of those services, and I love how the Lord is at work and what he is doing. Today's sermon is for the one who feels that your middle name should be failure. You thought by now in your life you would have accomplished more. Yet you look back on your life and see a pattern of sin and hurt. You're watching online perhaps because you're too ashamed to show your face here in the room. Or perhaps you're in the room this morning and you are simply trying to save face. Uh, The nagging question for you is, is there any hope for you? In this series called Trusting God in Hard Times, you have discovered that your hard time is your own doing. The mess you're in is a mess you've made. The problems you face are the problems you've created, and you have no one to blame but yourself. If that is you this morning, lean in and welcome. I'm glad you are with us. Hezekiah the king inherited a country full of people like you 
who felt like you, who had a history like you. You see, the country that Hezekiah inherited, Judah, which now for years Judah has been the kingdom in the south, Israel the kingdom in the north, and Israel is now fallen under the hands of Assyria. Judah is Hezekiah's kingdom, his domain. It's where he rules from the city of Jerusalem. He inherited a country full of people who had lived for years under Hezekiah's father Ahaz in sin. Their sin was tremendous. It was of unbelievable proportions. You see, Ahaz decided to offer, and somehow Hezekiah survived, his own sons to the god Moloch. Moloch was an idol that had an empty stomach, and in that empty stomach of this idol, fires burned, and the pagan people offered their babies in Moloch's stomach to God, to the gods, and they they uh, listened as their babies screamed in pain until they died. The place where this happened is referred to as the son of Hinnom. The son of Hinnom uh, became known as Gehenna. It's that space outside the city of Jerusalem where trash was burned. I've been to Nicaragua. One of the largest landfills in the world is in Managua. We did mission work there several years ago. We wore masks because the fires continually burn and it is unsafe to breathe the air. People live in that landfill. There is a school there started by a missionary. We did medical work there. Gary Grindstaff went with us, pulled teeth. It, it, it was unbelievable to see the conditions of that place. That is where they burned the babies in Ahaz's day. Hezekiah inherits this. He inherits a corrupt people in an awful situation. And for the first two weeks of his reign, he purges the temple itself. He gets rid, as Alan Michael wonderfully preached last week, of idols. He gets rid of what doesn't belong in the place where the worship of God is to take place. And his focus of week three is the people. And like every good leader, he begins with himself. And he begins with the rulers, the officials, even the priests of the temple itself. And finally, it makes its way to the people. And his invitation to them is my invitation to you this morning. Come home. Come home. If you have wandered away, if you feel that your life is marked by failure, come back. We will discover quickly these three realities of coming home. Uh, the first is that restored worship, that road home, which is to worship 
Restored worship confesses sin. Hezekiah rose early and gathered the officials and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering. Uh, the number seven in scripture is a number of completion. It is a number of completion. Uh, it then means by use of the number seven that Hezekiah recognizes the people are utterly sinful. They have gone as far as people can go. So they come into the house of God admitting their sinfulness. Do you know what I long for? I long for a day and I long for Sundays when you don't have to pretend. I long for you to be able to walk into this place with whatever has marked your week. And if you are ashamed of it, I long for Sundays where you can be honest as Dave led us before we sang this morning with the Lord with your mess. If we can't come into this place being real, we can't go anywhere and be real. Amen? This is a church. And the church is not intended to be a museum for saints. The church is a hospital for sinners. It is a place where people come who've gotten in an argument over the week or people who come who've fallen into lust once again. People come who've mistreated their neighbor once again and they realize as the Spirit meets them in worship, they need God. To trust God is to be honest with him. And so they offer a sin offering. There are five kinds of sacrifices in the book of Leviticus that are laid out for the people of God. Five kinds, and a sin offering is one of them. And as you might imagine, a sin offering is for offenses against God. And in the details in Leviticus, uh, in your life group this week, you'll look at those five kinds of sacrifices and you'll discover that the book of Leviticus, though hard and heavy reading, has tucked into it great insight for a God who longs for his people to come near. And he gives them five different kinds of sacrifices so that they can draw near. Um, in the detail, there were four classes of individuals who participated in the sin offering. And the four classes of individuals give us insight into God's understanding of people. Because the first might surprise you, it was for the priest. God understood that though someone was called to such a high level of ministry, a priest struggled with sin too. 
You must know that though I stand on an elevated platform, that is only so you can see up here a little bit better. I walk on the same ground you do. I stumble on the same rocks you do. I stump my toe like you do, as does every staff member at this church. We are people in need of a God who can take care of our sin problem too. Uh, there was an offering for the congregation, for the group altogether. At times, it's necessary for a church who's wandered away to come back as a collective congregation, as a people of God, and say, we've gotten things wrong. We put first things second, and second things first. There are churches that dot our nation that have wandered far from God and need to come home to him today. They do not preach the truth. They have abdicated the gospel. They do not believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God that is the authority for all of life today. And then there was for the ruler. Oh, that our rulers would fall on their knees and repent. Amen? Oh, that the leaders at every level in our nation would fall on their faces before God and repent of their sin and finally of the individual. The sin offering was for every one of those classes of, of people. Restored worship confesses sin. It admits to sin. If you sit in the room this morning struggling in your marriage, somebody's got to own it at some point. If you are battling an addiction, the reason Alcoholics Anonymous has you say your name and that you're an alcoholic is that admitting you got to issue with something is step one in moving toward resolving it. It's what scripture calls confession. But secondly, restored worship calls for sacrifice. They slaughtered the bulls and the priest received the blood and threw it against the altar and they slaughtered the rams and their blood was thrown against the altar, and they slaughtered the lambs. And their blood was thrown against the altar, and later they'll slaughter the goats. The word slaughter is used four times. Slaughter is not a pretty word. It's the same as massacre. With these animals, it involves some kind of knife, and a whole lot of blood and the stench of death. Uh, we're not very familiar with that in our day unless you grew up on a farm. I grew up where we raised a lot of what we ate and that included a couple of pigs. We called them hogs. It included a cow that we never named because it would be dead by year's end. That was our beef. And at one point we had chickens. And when it was time to eat them, we grabbed them 
I know this is going to gross some of you out. I'm just saying we grabbed them like this and chopped their heads off. And they scurried about until they bled out. We're not used to that. This was a bloody, awful, smelling, terrible scene. The dreadful mess on the altar mimics the dreadful mess in their hearts. At this point, the stench of the dying or dead animals, the sound of the bleeding of the lambs and goats that are waiting to be sacrificed, the blood all over the priest's hands, clothes, and altar would be anything but appealing. But neither is sin. Sin is ugly. Sin destroys I grew up hearing this statement that sin will take you farther than you intended to go, keep you longer than you intended to stay, and cost you more than you ever intended to pay. Sin is so appealing at the beginning. It, it, it has a pretty facade. It looks good. But sin, according to the writer of Romans, always leads to death. There is another sacrifice that's done differently. I don't know if you noticed, the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king in the assembly and they laid their hands on them and the priest slaughtered them. That's the same and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar but it's never mentioned their blood was thrown against the altar. It's, it's a different, and the wording is different. To make, here's the key word. There are two key words in this I don't want you to miss. Atonement for all Israel. The word atonement and the word all. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. Notice the change in wording here and notice the elevation theologically. A word emerges that is so critically important and the word is atonement. So I'll, I'll just provide a definition for you. Atonement is the reconciliation of God to man by means of a sacrifice. Atonement is the reconciliation of God to man by means of a sacrifice. The word uh, some have taken apart, and it uh, maybe helps people to remember at one meant. Uh, meaning uh, God and man are at one with one another. The word in its essential meaning means to cover. To cover. But what's interesting is that the, the atonement is for all Israel. All Israel. Well, uh, all of Israel isn't under Hezekiah's domain. He is king of Judah in the south. Israel in the north uh, has a few people remaining after the king of Assyria came in and wreaked havoc. Uh, this is interesting then, uh, uh, Hezekiah, why is it that you're saying atonement is made for all Israel when 
when all of Israel isn't under you? Could it be? And I asked the question, could it be? And let me give a little bit of history before I do. The books of one and two chronicles are the last books written as one most likely, but the last books written in the Old Testament. Just because they're placed here doesn't mean this is when they were written. They're simply grouped in with the history books because they're a history book. But 1 and 2 Chronicles were the last books written in the Old Testament believed by some to be written by Ezra. And once his pen goes down, there will not be another word from God for 400 years. 400 years of silence, not a word at all. So first and second chronicles are the last word of the Old Testament. And is it possible then when the writer of first and second chronicles is recording what Hezekiah did and Hezekiah says there will be an offering for all, atonement will be made for all of Israel. I don't know if Hezekiah knows, I don't know if Ezra knows, but I do know that God the Holy Spirit knew that there would come one, the voice, the word that would follow this would be one about, about Jesus Christ whose blood would be the sacrifice for all sin of all people who would come to him, amen? That would be the new word. The new word following all of this is all about Jesus. And I would submit to you that the word before all of this is still all about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews 10 uh, says this, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can, how often? All right, say that loud. Class, how often? Never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for, all right, so you're a little weak. Let's try that again. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when Jesus died on the cross, only had to do it once, though these priests had done it every day. Only once. And he did it for all. People for all time. Anybody who would come to him. So, so this describes you. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you sit here in the room this morning and you feel like your middle name is failure, but you've trusted Christ as, as your savior, your middle name isn't failure. You are a saint. You are being perfected by the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers your sin even today. And when God looks at you, he sees you not as you are, but as you one day will be perfect with him in heaven. Amen. That's how he sees you. True, restored worship calls for sacrifice, but restored worship also celebrates forgiveness. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, uh, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer of Nathan the prophet. And they stood with the instruments of David and the priest with the trumpets. And there's a description of all of that. And all of this happened simultaneously 
as the sacrifices were being offered and they were being burnt up. You see, sin offerings were burnt up completely. And when the offering was finished, verses 29 and 30, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped. And Hezekiah, the king, and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness. And they bowed down and worshiped. You see, if you want to have a glad heart, deal with your sin. And when the sin is gone and when you feel the weight lifted, all of a sudden the heart is lifted and it can sing the songs of God. That's what they did. They sang with gladness. Well, what did they sing? It said they sang the songs of David and of Asaph. They went to the hymnal of the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. They opened it up and they began to sing them. Hezekiah, in great humility, bowed down to worship. He knew he wasn't the king. There was another king and then he extends the invitation to all of Israel, and, and they come. Uh, Hezekiah said, you have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord, talking to the leaders. Come near, bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord, talking to the people. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all who, who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. Please hear me, unwilling worship is not worship. Unwilling worship is not worship. You can come to church and not come to worship. You can come to church and never worship God. You can come to worship and go through the motions. You can come to worship and feel maybe better about yourself. But if your heart isn't tuned to sing his praise, you will not worship. Notice what kinds of sacrifices they brought. Burnt offerings for their sins too. The number of burnt offerings that the assembly brought was, there's a whole big list. Suffice it to say, 3,970. Wow, that's a lot of blood. That's a lot of death for a lot of sin. But they also brought thank offerings. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, and there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Well, why does that matter? What are, what are thank offerings or peace offerings? When you study this in Life Group this week, you, I promise you'll enjoy this. When you study it, you will discover that the thank offerings were, in, were not completely consumed by fire. Part burned for God. Part eaten for you. A thank offering is God saying, come to dinner with me. Let's, let's eat. There's something about an invitation to dinner that's, that's really good, isn't it? When you sit at someone's table, it, you're with them. And all the way back in Leviticus, God wanted his people to sit and eat. Fast forward to Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens, I will come in and what? Eat. Or the old King James says that sup. I'll come in and have supper with him 
and he with me. When we get to heaven, when Christ returns and heaven and he reigns on heaven and on earth, there's going to be the what? The marriage what? Supper of the Lamb. God says, come eat. I've provided a way, but you can't come dirty to the table. You confess sin. You, you, can't, you don't come dirty to that. You come clean by your confession. When I was a senior at Wofford College, um, I became president of student body and as such was invited to, to come to a board of trustees meeting with pretty powerful people. At least for Wofford, they were quite powerful people, and some of them were more powerful in, in the country in different ways. And, uh, and so knowing you know, where I was from, they, they sat me down and taught me how to eat. Uh, I'd eaten for 22 years, but didn't quite know how. And so, so they sat me down, and they, they showed me and taught me about when you have a number of forks and spoons and cups and little spoons and big spoons and things like that. And I just didn't know how to use all those. I remember then going to the dinner that night and uh, it was at the Palmetto Club in Spartanburg. It was super nice. I'd never been to a place quite like that and, and big round tables. And sure enough, I, I walked in and glanced down and I saw more silver at one place setting than our whole family of six used together. And so, so I knew... Uh, and all I could remember was to start from the outside and work in. Like, I, I just, I knew there were different things for different things. And, and so, but that wasn't the big deal. The big deal was that there was a man who, who invested loads of money, millions in Wofford. Uh, his name was Roger Milliken. Some of you may have worked at some point for Milliken Industries. He owned it outright at that time. And uh, he was a wealthy, wealthy man. And he was Wofford's biggest benefactor. And he would be there. He's on the board. And, and I walk in, and Mr. Milliken comes over to me and grabs my arm and says, are you Jerry? And I said, yes, I am. And he says, eat with me. I was like, shoot. I hope I remember which fork to use. <laughs> All of a sudden, the ante has been upped quite a bit on how to eat. So we sat at the table, and I remember Dan Maltzby, who was one of the vice presidents of Wofford, he was at the table too. And... Uh, and, and Mr. Milliken began to ask me questions. And when he did, I didn't know any better but to give him just the total 100% honest answer. And I discovered as I was doing that, that maybe they weren't always 100% honest with Mr. Milliken because he was learning things from me that maybe he shouldn't have. <laughs> and the reason I learned that is because uh, Vice President Dr. Maltzby kicked me under the table once. <laughs> meaning, Jerry, shut up. Like, you don't need to tell everything you know. I still remember that. I graduated. I actually applied for a job there, was offered, but went to grad school. But um, I was doing Jen and Ryan Burleson's wedding years later down in Charlotte. And Jen, or Ryan's uncle uh, Bradley was in his backyard. And Bradley and I got to talking, and he was familiar with a bunch of Wofford people, and he said, uh, I was telling him about that, and he said, have you shared the gospel with Mr. Milliken? I said, no. 
At this point, Milliken, we all called him Milliken at Wofford. Milliken was in his 80s. And he said, why not? So I come home. I find a book written by a Christian businessman. And I write a letter and I put it in the mail to Mr. Milliken. I just put it into his corporate headquarters because I didn't know any other place to send it. And I thought, I'll never hear from this man again. About a month later, a letter. In the letter I wrote, Mr. Milliken, I'm sure you have no idea who I am. I had dinner with you one night at a board of trustees meeting. And I'm a pastor and I'm not asking for money. I just wanted to share this with you, this book. I received a letter. Dear Jerry, handwritten, of course I remember you. I remember our meal. And thank you for the book. My assistant forwarded it to me at my vacation home in Maine. I read it while on vacation. Well, I was thrilled. So I called Brad. I said, Brad. He wrote me back. He said, have you written your next letter? I said, no. He said, why not? And so... Letter number two, I sat down. I said, Mr. Milliken, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about the person who's made more difference in my life than anyone. His name is Jesus. This is what he did for me. And he can do the same for you. And I humbly want to say, if you ever want to talk about that, here's my contact information. Just call me. What was I doing? Inviting him to the table. Would you, would you sit down and eat at the table of forgiveness? That's my invitation to you this morning. I never heard back from him. He died a year or two later. I don't know if he gave his life to Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Anytime I, I do what I'm doing right now, the camera is zoomed in on me and catches nobody in the congregation. If you were here this morning and you say, Jerry, as you've been preaching or maybe while folks were singing, I realized there is space between me and God. And, and I, I want that space. I, I want him to forgive me of my sins and I want that space to be gone. Every believer in the room is praying right now or maybe you're a believer and let's start there. If you are a believer in the room this morning but you say, I need to confess and be done with some sin in my life and this sermon has nailed me, would you and the others pray for me? Would you just slip up your hand in the room this morning if that is you? Pray for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. 
I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. Oh, the Lord, the Lord wants you to come home and come back. At the end of the service, Adrian will be right down front if you need to come talk to him. And if we need more folks, we've got elders in this room and staff, and they'd love to pray with you. If you're in the room this morning and you say, Jerry, I've never given my life to Jesus like you talk about, like Chloe did on Wednesday night, I've never confessed my sin and, 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 and admitted my sin and, and trusted Jesus with my whole life. And this morning, I want to pray uh, and, and trust Jesus as my Savior. If that is you, would you slip up your hand this morning and say, today, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Thank you. Is there anyone else this morning? You are trusting Jesus with your whole life. All right. Here's what a prayer uh, for you who raised your hand. This is what this prayer looks like. Just bow your head and repeat this after me. Uh, you don't have to repeat it out loud, but from your heart, dear Jesus. I know that I am a sinner. I believe you died as the sacrifice for my sins. Today, I trust you as my Savior. I am done with my old life and I want to live the life you have for me. Forgive me, save me, change me. I believe you rose from the dead and are alive today. If you have prayed that prayer from your heart, Christ has come to live in you and this is the first day of the rest of your life. Church, would you celebrate with this person who has given their life to Jesus this morning? I would ask you too to come see Adrian.